0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants, and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: Captain. I'm having trouble. With the nature of individuality. You require a philosophical discussion. There's a time and a place for it. This is one of them. After I freed you from the Collective, you were transformed. It's been a difficult process. Was it worth it? I had no choice. That's not what I asked you.
2: If I could change what happened, erase what you did to me, would I? No. No. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, May 19, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Bond, And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you
3: from now until noon. Oh, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under
4: the clothes, everything will be alright.
2: And welcome to the show today. Are you having trouble with the nature of individuality? Because this is the time and the place for that philosophical discussion before the nature of our individuality becomes assimilated in the Force Collective, eh, Robert? (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to this, our 200th hour of Just Right. Hard to believe, eh? Yeah, 200 hours. It's uh, It's, uh, the 200th show. And, um, Robert, even the thought of just counting to 200 seems a bit exhausting to me, you know? And in the celebration of our 200th broadcast, let me first assure all our listeners that we will not be recounting all of the great shows of Just Right or doing a best of kind of show or anything like that. Even though our first broadcast of Just Right was back on April 19th, 2007, so I thought before we got into the show today, and today we're going to be talking about um, socialism in general, and the left, the left and right spectrum, and uh, a bit about education. And at the end of the show. We're going to be talking about your subject, which is, you're saying God is a conservative. Is that right, Robert? He's a conservative, is
3: he? Well, that's my, that, that's, that's what I'm going to posit.
2: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but since this is our 200th show, we didn't want to, you know, put the whole show to a 200 celebration. But we thought that if you're new to the show, if you haven't, you know, if this is something new to you, haven't you're not a regular listener, maybe you're wondering what is different about this show. What makes it different from other radio talk shows? And, you know, he might have caught just the odd broadcast. So I thought we'd just do a, a very quick review, just to remind ourselves of what the show is about from time to time. And, uh, Robert, tell me if I'm right on some of these points. I would say that we cover a lot of topics that the mainstream media won't cover. Wouldn't you say that? Not right. Just right. Just right. Okay. Yeah. No, that's correct, Bobby. Yes. And, you know, what we call, a, a, you know, a, what we objectively define as the true right, not the right wing. There's a lot that of sacred show. cows we kill on this yes. show. And we'll be getting into why we say that all the time at the beginning of the show, not right-wing, just right. And, you know, we do a lot of things on the show that are maybe a little different from what you hear on on regular programming. Just Right is not a commercial, commercially funded show or a state-funded broadcast. We're kind of in a, in a limbo area in that sense. We're strictly voluntary. Strictly voluntary, and um, of course the station's owned by um, the, the UCC, the Students' Union. And... Um, So we're here, you know, and and having done this show now, uh, I guess that marks marks our fourth year technically, we're into our fifth. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think it's a learning experience. It has been for me, not just for our listeners, but I think for us too. Because I think much of what you hear on this show is almost as new to us as it is to our listeners. Uh, I have to tell you, Robert, the show almost never turns out exactly as we envision it when we first discuss it when we
3: get together what i find bob is very interesting is that when we discuss a topic you and i sort of talk about the show a few days in advance like what are we going to be talking about Mm -hmm. and we think we have an idea about what we're going to say until we actually sit down and start to write it and research it and go wow i didn't realize this you know and and we it's an invite it's a learning experience for us. So exactly. Much, yeah. And um, having, and it kind
2: of is, it's a learning experience almost forced on you because 11 o'clock Thursday morning it rolls around whether you want it or not, yeah. right? <laughs> so you know you have to get a certain objective done every week. And I think that's a great discipline in a strange way. You know, we're under no illusion here that Just Right is what you might call a minority report. We're under, you know, We know that the opinions expressed on this program not only may differ from those of CHRW, but probably also differ from a majority opinion in society today. I I wonder, though. You think?
3: I I wonder. Sometimes you go out there and you you talk about what you did on the show, and I don't think I've heard any objections. No. It's funny, not in that sense, but what we talk about politically is totally different from what
2: people are voting for in terms of the political parties and, and the direction they're all heading in. So that's a an interesting thing
3: well we're given a certain amount of choices there and almost no choice when it comes to voting so i'm not surprised that when people vote some of the characters that we have in office into office um that doesn't necessarily mean they agree with what they stand for
2: yeah i guess that you got a point there we've been talking about that too haven't we mm-hmm. um now of course one thing that has just come to our consciousness over the past six months or so is that to the best of our knowledge, I think what we've been doing here at CHRW with this show has never been done before, not quite what we're doing. Even though there are other, many other talk shows out there, they're, they're how would you, I think you put it to me this way, you said they're kind of more philosophically inconsistent and ad hoc approach
3: to what they put on the radio. Oh, from, yeah, unfortunately. Not in you know. an
2: organized way that we have yeah. chosen to do here.
3: I think they treat subjects superficially, they don't get to the root of the problem philosophically like we do and i think that yes it's ad hoc you don't know they jump from subject to subject we we sometimes jump from subject to topic but we always bring every subject down to its root core of uh philosophic base like the, the metaphysics the phys- the epistemology of it the ethics of it and that's all we talk about on the show basically is we take the issues of the day and we look at them from a perspective perspective of philosoph- philosophy
2: and, and not always the issues we do we do all sorts of subjects too. Even Entertain. when we talk
3: about music, yeah. you know, we talk about it from a philosophical exactly. point of view.
2: And you can find all of these programs our first 199 programs mm-hmm. on our website at just at um, org Now, you know, um Just Right is an open line show. And uh I get the common occasion, well not too many people phone in and I say, well that's true. But we do keep our views open to the public criticism. And I've gotten letters from people who say they would call in, but they don't want to interrupt the flow of the show. (laughs) Or they, you know, that's the kind of thing that
3: we get. We get a lot of calls off the air, people saying, I like the show, or can they do this? We actually had calls on uh, during the uh, discussion here, and they'll talk to the operator to leave a point, but they don't want to interrupt us. They'll that, say, they'll tell the operator to let us know after the show that this is what they thought, but to, don't interrupt Bob. When that's, he's talking. that's right. So you
2: know it's it's um, it's an interesting reaction, and, and we kind of appreciate it in a way. But at the same time, we don't want want people to feel that they they, they can't interrupt us. No, not at all. And um, please but, do but but I know that some of the things we say are so um, different to a lot of people that you have to leave. Your your opinion open and and of course we you can also write us at um, um, what's our feedback you at justrightmedia.org yeah. very simple now of course uh, we partially pre produce the show. And uh, you'll always hear audio expert excerpts <laughs> uh, th- that are on the show. We, and, and, and they're drawn primarily from television sources, not always, but mostly from television sources. and that's for cultural reasons, which gives us a little bit of a unique formula or signature. You know Robert, after 200 shows, I've had to, we've had to edit, that's 200 times eight excerpts per show. It's 1,600 audio excerpts.
3: Not and, one of them is a repeat. And not by the one way. of
2: them is a repeat, and that's just a little one of the little rules we made for ourselves on the show because we knew that we were going to have these shows online. They were going to be archived, and we didn't want people to be getting the same material over and over again with each mm-hmm. with each file. So you know, we kind of use spoken word clips much in the same way that a lot of radio stations, including this one, would play songs. You know, yes,
3: just, that,
2: that's how I've. Vol- a little bit of how I looked at it. Now, the show's, uh, you know, partially pre- pre-produced. We never rehearse, we we'll never rehearse the show, but hopefully we're always prepared. Now, um, you know, if, if you're listening online, and that's the only place you hear the show, remember that Just Right is originally a live broadcast with no room for take-twos or repeat performances when we mess mess up, and uh, which happens. Uh, we, we do mess up. I understand <laughs> last week, Robert, I made
3: a couple of boo-boos. Um, Just factual, not not as bad as me calling myself Robert Metz, though. Well, yeah, you did that once. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and last week I was told by a listener that in reference to Geert Wilder's party of freedom in Holland, he told me apparently I said Austria. <laughs> I don't remember, and you never caught it. Oh, no, I didn't and, get it. And um, so I, I'm assu- I think that's what he told me I said, but some other European country. And um, now and on the show, you caught me saying that I said that. Uh, The Koran was banned in Holland. when actually was Mein Kampf. Yes, and I we corrected. So, and I know I've mispronounced a host of names and Tanzania, yeah, Tanzania, (laughs) Tanzania. Well, I'll I'll invite you to
3: Albania when you when I go there sometime. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's so easy to do I know that people out there are laughing why did he mispronounce that yeah. word believe me it's very easy to do
2: you, It's uh, and you just go right through it you know non the things that are on our minds when we're on the air sometimes are not always the material we're talking about now we don't correct or edit our errors we leave them in our archive copies so therefore we apologize in any advance, you know in advance for any inconvenience or misunderstandings as, as a consequence now you know one thing though what is the just right concept about I think I always refer to it as a journey of discovery that continues in the right direction and never in the left direction, Um, especially since our definitions of right and left are absolutes on this show. They're not just relative to each other as they are out there in the public uh, marketplace. And I don't think anyone can make that claim on any other show, because most people are are trying to get rid of those labels, and we're trying to define them and clear them up. And that's part of what today is going to be about. You know, as we've all learned together on this show, what we popularly hear referred to as the left and right are really both on the left ideologically but differ in ethical values. Um, As Robert and I have recently been, you know, pointing out, socialists are a little more subjective and conservatives tend to be more intrinsic in the way they look at things. And that's really Mm -hmm. what we're calling the left and right um, split out in the political marketplace. So we have to be on guard against the trap into which the popular right and left delusion may lead us. I mean, what would happen if both right and left were completely drifting left, and who or what would be left on the right? Unless you have an objective fixed standard, there's no way to ever determine that, and that's what we're trying to do on this show. So with that in mind, Robert, I thought to start off with our first subject right away. I've been reading a book. You have? Um, Yeah, I got got a book for Mother's Day and you, uh, you did <laughs> yes well, well I should explain that um my birthday is very close to Mother's Day so my birthday gets tagged on to oh, Mother's okay. Day every year as that's when it's just when sort I of reminded <laughs> me of an episode of Modern Family <laughs> but um very interesting book I'm actually going to recommend it although I have a lot of misgivings about it just came out this year 2011 it's called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Socialism and it's by Kevin D Williamson and it's part of a series you can see i got a copy of it here and if you look inside you'll see there's a whole bunch of politically incorrect guides to all kinds of things and however oh and he's, he's a managing editor of the national review so i expected the usual conservative intrinsicisms as we say and i certainly got them um you know insofar as the book is focused on the task of distinguishing socialism from other forms of government and economy it manages to avoid a lot of the common pitfalls i have seen in other books and but it still misdefines key terms and references and the irony is that i only put it together this morning i knew something was bugging me what was it about this book that kept missing the point point? and it was gr- basically i would say this book is great on socialism which is its subject but terrible on capitalism makes the classic errors about capitalism. Most
3: conservatives cannot and explain capitalism.
2: It, it's very interesting to see it constantly come up, even in someone who's supposedly defending the book on capitalism. I haven't seen the po- politically incorrect guide to capitalism, but I'm kind of afraid <laughs> of what I might find, although it might not be by the same author. So we can't judge to you know run to any conclusions that way. But Williamson's theme is that, so, quote, socialism never works because it can't work. Okay and i'm thinking okay i think i'm i think i know what he means but really socialism does work it just doesn't do what the author thinks it should do (laughs) okay based on maybe false claims and intentions made by socialists which is really what i think the author is criticizing and attacking he says quote socialism is not a particular set of political conditions but a specific kind of economic arrangement socialism is not confined to the left he says now i disagree with both of those assertions robert um, first of all you can't say it's a, it's just an economic arrangement it's a non-voluntary <laughs> economic arrangement quote arranged politically by governments how can you call that an economic arrangement using force for political objectives you know true economic arrangements by definition have to be voluntary or consensual and therefore. You know, they can only be capitalistic. The irony is he says that in his book. He talks about prices, how prices have to be on a free market and all this stuff. But he doesn't see it in the point of actually defining the systems he's talking about. You know, in the same way you can't say that slavery is a legitimate form of economic arrangement, you can't say socialism is either. A social arrangement. A social arrangement, right. So, uh, you know, socialism is is strictly left. And I think what the author means when he says sociali- socialism is not confined to the left is The left wing compared to the right wing, both of which are, from our point of view, firmly entrenched on the left, right? Mm -hmm. Left, Left, right, right. Yeah, see that? It's only when viewed correctly with that perspective, I think, that the terms left and right properly correspond with reality. That's the test. And can be understood in a consistent way using reason. So, So there's no room whatsoever for socialism on the right side, the true right side of the political spectrum. And, uh, you know, as we've learned together on this show, the left wing and the right wing differ only on terms of their ethics. The right wing tends to be intrinsic, the left wing subjective. So to be on the true right, one must be consistently objective, which is why capitalism and freedom are to be found there. And socialism and dictatorship are nowhere to be seen. So if it were true, too, you know, that socialism is not only confined to the left, as the author asserts, then socialism must also be on the right, too, right? If it's not confined just to the left, it's got to be on the right. And if that's true, then where on the political spectrum is there any room for capitalism or free markets if socialism's on the right? Hello? (laughs) What, if we fit it in the middle? (laughs) Between socialism and socialism? If socialism's both on the left and right, does that mean capitalism is also both on the left and the right? If the answer to the question is no then it can only mean that there's no room for capitalism anywhere in the political spectrum. And if the answer to the question is yes, then any point of distinguishing left from right becomes totally meaningless. You see see the dilemma? Yes. That's what epistemology leads you into. You can't define these things arbitrarily. You can't make it up. Because if you go through the process of elimination, you know, this or that, just like a computer would, the computer would crash every time it tried to do anything the way we define left and right out there. It couldn't work. No computer would operate. The logic doesn't work. So that's why I'm forced to conclude that the author's epistemology on the use of left and right is totally unsound. And it only serves to confuse where, where clarity is required. And by the way, left and right uh, are also useful in polarizing issues, which is necessary if you want to change something. You can't change something and leave an issue unpolarized. And you always see people in politics complaining about the polarization of issues. We don't want to get polarized because what they're saying is we don't want to change anything so the issue of socialism is in our society certainly nothing new gonna take a quick break here and with this next clip what we'll be hearing is from the, the 1980 PBS series free to choose featuring Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman in debate with a panel over the folly of government intervention and planning in the economy. Of course, Milton Friedman is tending to the free market capitalist side of the equation, and he's got a bunch of people around him who think, well, capitalism will not, of course, meet all the various needs of society. So let's listen in, and we'll be back right after this.
1: Governor
5: Peterson. Let me ask you how you would cope with this uh, problem, Dr. Friedman. The people decided that they wanted cool air. There was a tremendous need. And so we built a huge industry, the air conditioner industry. Hundreds of thousands of jobs, tremendous earnings opportunities, and nearly all of us now have air-conditioned homes and cars and offices. But then the people decided they wanted clean air, and they couldn't buy it in the marketplace. So they voted at the polling place. They got their elected representatives to go to the Congress and say, we are going to have clean air. Now overnight there was a new market, and the free enterprise system responded to that. Now there's a big environmental industry making earnings, providing jobs, but also serving this public need to have the freedom to breathe clean air. You grossly underestimate the extent to which,
1: to which the private market is able to do it. It's not an accident that the air, before you had any of this legislation, the air and water was, were cleaner in the United States today than they were in the United States a hundred years ago. You know the uh, automobile added one kind of pollution, but it eliminated a far worse kind of pollution. If you consider what the streets of New York would look like today if you were still uh, transporting people by horse-drawn vehicles, you would have pollution on a scale that would stagger you. In the same way, it's not an accident that the air is cleaner and the water purer in those countries today that are the most advanced than they are in the backward country. It's not in Afghanistan that you find clean air and water. It's in the advanced countries. So the market
6: is a very much more subtle mechanism then people give it credit for being. I would like to get this back to the, to the real world, because in the real world, there is no possibility that American business, which is a welfare-dependent business system, is going to adopt these ideas. What these ideas... Are What these ideas function as, in the real world, is a rationalization for the myth of free enterprise, which disguises the fact of state capitalism, as an argument against social intervention in a society that does intervene on behalf of the steel industry very quickly. Finally, in terms of, of the American political process, I don't believe that the political process is so simple as having the people elect the government. The fact is that when a Jimmy Carter is elected president on a relatively liberal platform, he then has to win business confidence because of the control of the investment process by corporate power. And I think that fact, corporate power, rationalized by free enterprise myths, is the central problem of freedom in our time, and that's what has to be attacked. Before we come to Milton again... No, no, uh, but
1: I've got to to comment on this, because I think we mustn't let words get in the way of what really is the case i take it you think we don't have socialism i would say to you that forty six percent of every corporation in this country is owned by the u.s. government that's the uh, corporate income tax that means out of every dollar of profits that a co- corporation makes forty six cents goes to the u.s. government the actual tax is far higher than that because you tax that doubly when it comes to the individual the, uh, the extent to which corporations control their investment decisions has been increasingly reduced. The government is dictating what they spend their investment funds on in, in the name of pollution control and in the name of other things. It's a myth to suppose that there is some kind of a big corporate power over here. There was a time when corporations were more influential than they are now, but at the moment, I think they're a beleaguered minority rather than the dominant majority.
2: And that was Milton Friedman, way back in 1979, 1980. Can you imagine that, Robert? Forty-six percent corporate tax rate. Wow. Amazing. You know, I heard the term uh, state capitalism used by the socialist there in his argument with Milton Friedman. I always thought state capitalism was one of those oxymoronic terms because capitalism means a separation separation of economics in the state. Mm -hmm. So state capitalism, excuse me? you know it's just it's totally contradictory but i think it's It's like private socialism well you know i think it's a socialist word for for right-wing socialism for corporations in business that's what they call state capitalism so when the state intervenes on behalf of business interests protecting their markets from competition. And so they call that state capitalism, when in fact it's not capitalism at all, because capitalism means separation of state and economics. So it can't be capitalism, by definition. What is it? It's an intervention. It's socialism. It's central planning. And that's the whole issue of this book, The Politically Correct Guide to Socialism. So here's where we get some valuable clarity by the way if you're just tuning in we're talking about socialism the left right spectrum and i've been reading a book called the politically incorrect guide to socialism which is written by kevin williamson of the uh, national review and um this is something that i liked he says socialism is not principally about redistributing wealth or income from the rich to the poor did you know that robert socialism socialism is about politicians planning the economy politicization of the economy not redistribution is the hallmark of socialism and i would agree with that mm-hmm. i think that's correct and it's also why we repeatedly say on this show that capitalism represents a separation of economics in the state you know it does not represent no government or no taxation those are separate things what we're talking about is planning the economy and that of course is the hallmark of socialism and that's why it's the correct name there socialism he writes means central planning and he gives a couple of good examples here a food stamp program is welfare government-run farms and grocery stores that's socialism <laughs> okay uh, a school voucher is welfare a government-run school system is socialism I'm talking about that shortly too and so i can agree with that distinction it's useful um one and it's a powerful weapon i think against socialism and government planning when we look at it more that that's what it really is um i actually got a chance to confront uh, london mayor joe fontana on another station this week about that very issue i said to him joe i says everything i hear you talking about all this business planning sounds like state-run centralized government planning right and, all, and everything he was talking about was more about making sure that the city had a, a great municipal tax base to tax, you know, the property tax base. So I suggested to him, I said, how different would planning be if if we weren't, financing the city through property taxes but say through some consumption tax well I didn't get a chance to debate with him but after I was off the air he he starts talking about how he agrees with me and he says yeah we should be on a consumption tax and add that to the property tax base (laughs) when I said no no I don't want to add it to the property tax base Uh, you want to take it off of that you know so government planning is a big thing after all we've all all been recently required by law to fill out our government census forms Mm -hmm. and which we are told provide information for government planning Aren't they doing a good job? Apparently, Robert, without these census stats, uh, it would not be possible to manage the economy or to govern appropriately. <laughs> so let's keep this distinction, these distinctions in the back of our mind, the whole thing about government planning as being the, the key thing to socialism. Now, the larger definition of socialism in, in his book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Socialism, he divides the definition into two parts, and he says... Number 1 this is his definition of socialism in general which is different from what he said that the, the distinction of it was I don't not quite sure I understand that but he says socialism is one the provision of the public provision of non-public goods and two economic central planning now this is not useful i didn't find no. that useful at all uh, public provision means state provided Okay, roads are provided by the state, but I wouldn't really call roads socialist per se, in the sense that our schools and hospitals might be. Um, the courts, the police, the armed forces are, are similar, you know, similar government kind of provided goods, but I wouldn't call them socialist. It's not that the government may, prov- you know, it's, it's not that the government may provide certain public goods, but how and what it pays for i think and how it regulates or controls it determines its true nature whether it's socialist or capitalist and and this is a funny statement he says he quote social socialist central planning is fairly easy to spot because it has an easily identifiable signature failure (laughs) (laughs) well okay that's interesting that one stopped me for a while i said failure well i'd say no socialism is successful it does exactly what it purports to do i think it's successful on two grounds not just one Number one, it's become the predominant political philosophy in the world today. So how can you argue with success like that? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's success. But it's also successful in achieving its goals wherever it is tried. Both, in fact, a- a- in fact, and in the eyes of its proponents. Uh, yes, poverty is a sign of socialist success. When you see poverty and it's caused by socialism, then socialism has been successful at redistributed wealth. That's what the redistribution of wealth looks like at the end when mm-hmm. it's done. So, you know, but but it's, you know, <laughs> he seems to think that um, this, is what I, this is what I thought was funny. He says, socialism's main defects are the inability of political decision-makers to make rational decisions without the information provided by prices. Okay, now this is an economist talking, and I have to think... You know, does a political decision-maker need prices to know what the right thing to do is? <laughs> I can't, I don't think a political decision-maker needs a price to know what the right thing is. He needs a moral code, I think, that respects the individual rights and freedoms of all individuals, regardless of how they value or price consumer goods. <laughs> what has that got to do with government? And And is that all it is? I mean, does the author really believe that someone like Castro... <laughs> And the vast majority of dictators here and abroad are truly interested in rational decision-making. Is that what their, their goal is? Oh, well, we just screwed up. Oh, darn it. That, that darn old socialism just didn't work again, right? Uh, you know, what, what evidence is there of this? I don't see any. I think this is failing the reality test. Uh, reason is in and of itself a component of capitalist thinking, not of socialist thinking. Socialism eliminates thinking completely. Replacing it with obedience. That's what it's all about. So I don't even know why they're talking about choices when they're talking about making choices for planning. You can't do that. But um, it just goes to show you you know how even someone who... You know, I might sound like I'm tearing this book apart, by the way, which I'm not. I'm just getting at those points that are constantly dismissed by people. It's a great book if you want to read a lot of great examples about how socialism actually does screw up in terms of Not creating the wealth it promises but um, it's just interesting that uh, he would even go in that direction now in quite properly rejecting the labor theory of value now that's a good thing most most people wouldn't Uh, he says this and this is fascinating Um, Ayn Rand's followers who are some of the most energetic defenders of capitalism in the world call themselves objectivists but in truth capitalism assumes a radical subjectivism in the marketplace The real objective economic value of things is identical to how people subjectively value them. Now, I agree with that. That's true. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with that. Um, But, therefore, the price is objective, you know. And, by the way, energetic is not the word that comes to mind when I think of objectivists, but that's another issue. (laughs) (laughs) But the truth is capitalism does not assume a radical subjectivism in the marketplace. Capitalism is a separation of economics and state which is radically objective and immutable. It is this separation of state and economics that makes it possible for individual consumers to subjectively value specific consumer items and services on an individualistic basis. And the objective measurement of this subjective valuation
3: is known as free market prices. I think I see you the know? difference. I think I see his problem here. When he looks at the word objectivism, he's looking at how somebody evaluates uh, a good or a transaction. When Ayn Rand used the term objectivism simply to mean that reality is the arbiter of everything.
2: True, but even so, prices are an objective measurement. You can't mess with them. Well, that's true. They're not, they're not arbitrary. That's the point.
3: An individual can be subjective when he's value determinations. However, um, based, uh, a transaction can only be valued in and of itself based on the facts of reality. Understood.
2: And I agree. Now, here's where he makes the really big fatal mistake. He associates socialism with morality and disassociates this associates capitalism from morality quote he says socialism breaks with capitalism on precisely this issue it seeks to infuse the fundamental deep process of the economy the setting of prices with a with a moral meaning capitalism's approach however is to answer the question economically and apparently not to concern itself with moral considerations his example is under capitalism you're free to buy pornography therefore capitalism isn't isn't concerned with morality can you imagine that That's his his example. Capitalism has nothing to say about whether people should value goods and services the way they do. And I'm thinking, oh my God, nothing could be further from the truth. Capitalism is the only moral economic system since it's based on the principle of morality itself. Free minds, free markets, freedom of choice. Any initiation of force by government or by criminal is immoral. That's how we tell the difference between the good guys and the bad guys. The guy who starts the fight is the bully. The guy who's attacked by the bully is the victim. But with socialism, that whole moral hierarchy is reversed. And you know, there, there's, a, there's a reprinted National Post report in the in this same book by L- Larry Solomon, who's been a guest on this show, by the way and uh, from may, may 2003 where he reports on the reality of socialism and capital in castro's cuba where five hundred thousand people have been executed since nineteen fifty nine for political offenses and he writes in castro's cuba it is a crime to meet to discuss the economy to write letters to the government to report on political developments to speak to international reporters to advocate human rights cubans often serve ten to twenty years for political crimes but most cuban criminals are not political. A large portion of the estimated 180,000 to 200,000 common criminals in Cuba's 500 prisoner prisons are people who broke the law by killing their own pigs, cattle, and horses and selling the excess meat on the black market. This is happening in Canada now, by the way, too. So again, I have to ask how can anyone conclude that socialism's main defects are economic when they're obviously moral and ethical? And whether we're talking about Castro in Cuba or our own thousands of mini Castros right here at home known as socialists, providing them with accurate market prices even if it were possible it would not do a thing to enable political decision makers to make rational economic decisions for everyone you know ca- socialism's causal defect is not economic economic dysfunction is merely the consequence of socialism's irrational metaphysics epistemology and ethics so in the vernacular robert socialism's completely wacko
3: that's it, it took you all that time yeah, to say that just to say that
2: <laughs> now when we return on the other side of this break you'll be hearing the voice of professor john hospers who was the first libertarian american presidential candidate speaking in the year two thousand right here at the university of western ontario in his both chilling and hopeful presentation dr hospers reveals what he believes would be the single most effective antidote and antidote to the encroachment of leviathan as he calls it the monster government that's stomping on the little guy we'll listen to that when we get back and then we'll continue our conversation on just right today our 200th episode
4: he built that field because he wanted to give back. I think that's why he went to Cuba. He wanted to see if he could do something good. But I guess things hadn't changed as much as he had hoped for. What happened? Have you heard this story? No. You're gonna like this castle. It's like one of your books. It was the 92 Olympics. The Cubans had just won gold in Barcelona. Thanks mostly to Cano. And I wanted to get him to the States to play in the bigs. Now convincing him was the easy part. Getting him onto my plane, that was the hard part. We had to get past coaches, minders, and finally, El Pulpo, head of state security. Because he had his tentacles around everybody. And just as we thought we were home free, boom, El Pulpo. We were caught, sunk. A firing squad, I kid you not, was waiting for that kid back in Havana. You know how I got us past El Pulpo? Rolex. (laughs) I gave him my shiny new Rolex, and he just looked the other way. (laughs) This goes to show you, every socialist is a capitalist when backs are
0: turned. Is not something about it's about to descend on us in one fell swoop this whole tendency is not reversible by the year 2004 it has to be achieved in small increments i was glad when the welfare reform bill was passed two years ago which put some brakes on the welfare state saving billions of dollars and putting recipients back on the workforce i was also pleased a few months ago when the supreme court found unconstitutional Uh, A law prohibiting a person from carrying a gun within a thousand feet of a school building never was the federal government's business in the first place. And then how about making a few similar decisions for a few thousand other matters like guns and drugs, and how about asset forfeiture? Can anyone say that's constitutional? But all the while, Leviathan, the great whale that comes out of the deep to swallow us, exerts mounting influence. How is Leviathan to be conquered? I think I'd be willing to give up everything else on our agenda in return for just one thing namely the dissolution of the state-controlled educational system which tells us where we can go to school and what subjects can be taught and by whom the state, remember, also controls the conditions that have to be met for someone to become a qualified teacher. Einstein wouldn't be permitted to teach physics in an American public high school because he didn't have a teaching certificate. And the task of acquiring that is a matter of such dullness and stupidity as to deter many people who will never be Einsteins. The whole educational establishment controlled by the teacher unions with the cooperation of the liberal press are out to ensure that the future will consist of more of the same. We have to get education out of the hands of the state as it was in Jefferson's day. But that's a daunting task, you see. It means hiring teachers who know their subject matter, not just those who have passed the required number of education courses. It means more, no more dumbing down of the subjects that make tests easier each year to get, just to get the kids passed. It means no more pretending that the answers to arithmetical problems aren't correct or incorrect, only a matter of how you feel about it. It means getting rid of the top heavy educational bureaucracy which will fight to the death any attempt to dislodge it. That means exerting the same patience and determination that the left has done in the last 50 years, turning bright young minds into willing subjects of the latest educational craze, deconstruction, or multiculturalism, or whatever. And the left doesn't want us to exercise our choices. At a recent demonstration in Washington, DC, officially against the IMF, students held up placards workers of the world unite as if nobody ever thought of that before (laughs) they were asked why capitalist countries were rich and communist nations were poor surely that wasn't the climate of the soil or the soil. Consider north korea versus south korea east germany versus west germany the answer they gave was capitalist nations steal from communist nations (laughs) and the capitalist nations get rich off of them and that was their explanation. Now, if the students were trained in handling somewhat complex arguments, they could figure out for themselves what was wrong with this and a thousand other naive slogans. They could figure out on their own the consequences of 10,000 foolish regulations to which they're subject. And if they knew anything about the rise and falls of civilizations, they might be able to prevent yet another tyranny from taking root. But you see, they haven't done these things American public high school students are probably no more informed about what's going on in the world than were the members of the Hitler Youth Movement they simply have no idea what mischief is cooking in the great wide world around them they have no idea it would probably be easy for a tyrannical regime with a few slick slogans to capture their support just give them some promises and some money and suppress dissent and you got it made do you really think this could not happen Do you really think everything would be resolved by 2004? Of course, in conclusion, there's a rising tide of people who would not be taken in by these arguments. But whether they'd be enough to change the social order, we cannot yet say. One great hope for the future is the internet, a rather quick, sudden development, spearheaded to a large extent by libertarians, strongly resistant to government controls. Possibilities are immense. In one way or another, it will transform our future. Perhaps one can express the hope that by the time all school children have computers, uh, those who use it will be able to spell the words in their own language and make correct change without a calculator. I <laughs> <laughs> wonder if that ever is
2: going to happen, eh, Robert? Mm-hmm. That was recorded right here at the University of Western Ontario in 2000. I think it's more than ironic that today on the internet, Professor Hospers and I are friends on Facebook, Robert. And he's been able to listen to this program from his home in California. How cool is that? Hello, John. How are (laughs) you? We've been talking about the Politically Incorrect Guide to Socialism, and you're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. From now till noon, we'll be here. Our 200th show, just talking, you know, basic review of socialism and some of the ideas of left and right. And this book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Socialism, talks about a major chapter, and it is about education. The I- irony is it's, it's got a really strange name, The Prussian Roots of American Socialism. That's the chapter about education. And he begins t- telling us about the history of public education in the U.S., which is very interesting because it began with German leader Otto von Bismarck, about whom he wrote bismarck was no socialist in the sense that a lot of us understand socialism today he did not advocate the public ownership of capital he did not advocate the suppression of private property the establishment of a classless society or any of the other fundamental goals that a lot of socialism purports to pursue bismarck called his philosophy such as it was real politic which we might render in english he says as pragmatism where we heard that before from the conservatives eh? It was real politic and not romantic socialism that thereby led to the establishment of Europe's first major welfare state As Bismarck oversaw the creation of social insurance program a health insurance entitlement old age pensions disability benefits and restrictive labor laws You know conservatives uh, being proud pragmatists Is it any surprise then that the major socialist projects originate from conservative governments and not from liberals and and socialist parties? It, It makes perfect sense with this Robert And he writes, real, real politic caught the attention of a group of Americans commonly known as the progressives, among the most prominent of which was John Dewey, who spearheaded America's progressive vision for education. Now, at this point, one might think the fundamental purpose behind public education being pursued by the progressives would have been some sort of progressive education in the liberal arts, but apparently that's not so. The earliest public schooling project in the United States had a very different goal, to curb the influence of Satan. (laughs) passed in 1647 under the old deluder satan law the true intent of this law is not about instruction in the liberal arts but about indoctrination literally as christians use the word he says to enforce uniformity of opinion which is to say conformity of all opinion with the official dogma of the governing powers public schools have served the same function ever since The point of public public education is and always has been, he writes, is to make members of the public better and more productive servants of the state. It is undeniable that the public provision of educational services is understood today and has always been understood as a component of national economic planning. And there he talks about the educators who are the biggest defenders of socialism, people in the public education system. And interesting, he cites economist Marie Rothbard, who wrote in 1973, Uh, and, and who in turn cites 19th century public schooling advocate Newton Bateman, who called for a socialist model of mandatory schooling. Education, he wrote, was too important to be left to the marketplace. Bateman's reasoning was extended to its natural conclusion in the state of Oregon, which in 1922 tried to ban all private schools as well as established state schools. The driving force behind the proposal? The Ku Klux Klan. They wanted to make sure that new immigrants, particularly Catholics, were sufficiently Americanized, by which they presumably meant much the same thing that Martin Luther meant. Socialist education in the United States has results similar to the results of the socialist cartels in India or the socialist collective farms of the USSR. The inner city schools are a nightmare from coast to coast. Spending has skyrocketed while educational outcomes have stagnated or declined. So, we know a lot about this whole situation, and of course, that's what um, we just heard about in the clip just coming into this part of the show. Um, but again, you know the interesting thing is he says the principle of our public education system is based on the same ideas employed in soviet economic planning and here's a funny little story that is told by uh, economist paul craig roberts regarding the shortcomings of soviet central planning this is kind of cute apparently when the output of a nail factory was measured in total units of production by the government which means a total number of nails well then the managers of the factories in the soviet union decided to produce great quantities of small thin nails <laughs> None of them worked for anything. And so basically, and then so, so the state decided, well, we've got a problem here. We've got to change it. So let's change the measure of output to gross tonnage. Well, then the managers <laughs> switched to making big, heavy, stubby little fat nails, right? But nothing, you know, in both cases, they produced what the measurers measured, regardless of what the economy wanted. And that's what happens when the state gets into measuring things. And that's, you can, can you imagine that that's going on in our healthcare system right now,
3: and the education yes. system.
2: And he says, the socialist economics of the U.S. public school system operates the same way. When schools were measured by their graduation rates, they lowered standards, and they graduated more students. When they were measured by standardized test scores, they neglected general education and lobbied to have the test designed so as to maximize the test scores, you know? So, uh, it's just fascinating to hear all of this.
3: Education is too important to leave to the state, if you ask me. Exactly.
2: So these are some of the great things that come out of this book but despite the many things I like about the politically incorrect guide to socialism I think the book is still a bit politically correct by being morally incorrect um, you know when he writes that the most important objection to socialism is a technical one not a moral one um, you know he's not denying that there's a moral case against socialism but but you know, he still believes the Achilles heel of socialism is that labor theory of value You know, socialism posits that economic values are fixed and knowable. And citing the work of Ludwig von Mises, by the way, the world's most principled capitalist economist, he correctly argues that the lack of real market prices in a socialist economy would make economic calculations impossible. So as a consequence, socialism is impossible because without prices there can be no economic calculation, etc. But when the central planners say, you know, they're considering all the options and taking all the information into account, they can never be telling the truth because they don't even know what the options are because they cannot know. And while all this is true, Robert, I have to disagree most strongly that the most important objection to socialism is not a moral one. It is a moral one. It's the only one. Because for all of its scientific centralized planning, socialism depends upon one guiding principle, the initiation of physical force to obtain values taken from those who created them. Without its gun, socialism's centralized planning would have no way of realizing itself with all the calculations in the world. (laughs) Wouldn't help one bit. So that's it for me, gonna take a quick break here. When we come back, we're gonna be talking about why God is a conservative. Back after this.
5: papers, Herr Commandant.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Shot down near Hamelberg, captured by farmers, turned over to the Gestapo,
4: assigned here. He didn't give us any trouble, Herr Commandant. Which is more than I can say for you. Why were you late? In Hamburg,
5: they wouldn't let us leave Gestapo headquarters until the gold bars were in the bank.
4: Gold? What are you blabbering about?
5: A big shipment of gold bars, which we stole from the Bank of France, is being shipped to Dusseldorf.
4: Not stolen, confiscated! (laughs) When you defeat a country, you confiscate its gold. (laughs) Stupid. Stupid i thought if
5: you take something that does not belong to you that is stealing i'm
4: stupid i don't think you're so stupid silence captain i want to inform you that you have been assigned to the strictest pow camp in germany no one has ever escaped from
5: What we saw on Tuesday, as terrible as it is, could be minuscule if in, fact, if in fact God continues to lift the curtain and allow the enemies of America to give us probably what we deserve.
1: Well, Jerry, that's my feeling. I think we've just seen the the anti-chamber to terror. We haven't even begun to see what they can do to the major population. I well, mean, actually,
5: the ACLU has uh, got to take a lot of blame for this. Oh, yeah. And I know I'll hear from them for this, but uh, throwing God successfully, with the help of the federal court system, yes. throwing God out of the public square, out of the schools, uh, the abortionists have got to bear some burden for this because... Uh, God will not be mocked, and when we destroy 40 million little innocent babies, we make God mad. I I really believe that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle, the ACLU, People for the American Way, all of them who tried to secularize America, I point the thing in their face and say, you helped this happen. Well, I I totally concur.
3: And that was Jerry Falwell with Pat Robertson, that particular piece of vitriol. Jerry Falwell, of course, um, came to prominence in 1979 with his creation of the so-called moral majority.
2: And that was broadcast just a couple days after 9-11, right?
3: That particular broadcast was, I think, two days after September 11th attacks in, uh, in the United States, and they were talking about how it was Americans' degradation in society that basically... Caused that and they deserved it pretty sick stuff if you ask me now a group of evangelical christians that was the major uh, moral majority and their aim it was to influence the politics of the united states in such a way as to have society conform to their notion of what was moral again we have the introduction of force very much like the socialism we were just talking about now the target of this group was the republican party and in 1980 it was credited by some with getting ronald reagan elected president now the one defining characteristic of evangelicals that is to uh, that that i find crucial understanding of how they influence not only conservative right wing in the united states but also the newly created conservative party here in canada is their literal interpretation of the bible as the word of their abrahamic god evangelicals believe that god created the earth in seven days they believe in adam and eve noah and the flood and they believe the world is about six thousand years old give or take now most importantly they believe that everyone must be saved whatever that means you're talking about our conservatives here in canada we're talking about evangelical conservatives here in canada there's no difference i don't i find no
2: how come we don't hear so much about them
3: well we actually do hear a lot about it but um Uh, Just to get back to my point here, most importantly, they believe that everybody must be saved by recognizing Jesus as their personal, quote, Savior. I really don't know what that means, but that's the the rhetoric. Now, to this end, they have become involved politically in an attempt to change the laws in the United States and Canada to lead the population out of their sinful ways and into a path more, quote, moral, whether we choose to be or not. By the way, their definition of the word moral is not mine. Now, on past shows, I've talked about how alike the Conservatives are to the Liberals in their economic policies. As you've just mentioned, Bob, in the early part of the show, they're both socialists, no doubt about it. But up until the early 1990s, there was very little difference between the two spectra of the left wing. Conservatives were interchangeable with Liberals. With the alienation, however, of... Western Canada by the Mulroney Conservatives in the 1980s, all of a sudden we have an attempt by the Evangelicals, mostly from the West, to infiltrate the halls of Parliament through the creation of the Reform Party, and then the Canadian Alliance, which, by the way, I actually ran for, and, um, and now the Conservative Party of Canada. Now, many of the issues of personal behaviour, we can see a clear polarisation between the new Conservatives, and the liberals uh, examine this list of issues and consider how a conservative might approach the issue versus a liberal i think you'll find that there is a clear distinction between what people label to be conservative and what they label to be liberal just consider abortion suicide assisted suicide embryonic stem cell research pornography drugs prostitution homosexuality gay quote marriage the death penalty sunday shopping laws human cloning if such a thing were possible and the teaching of creationism in schools just consider that list now i think that most of us would agree on how a conservative would vote on these issues versus a liberal now, evangelicals believe that your body being a gift from their god belongs to their god and that you should have no choice in tampering with their god's creation You cannot take your own life, you cannot adulterate your mind with drugs, you cannot tamper with natural reproduction, etc., etc. Now, a liberal, on the other hand, is more prone to allow us a choice when it comes to our actions. This difference is due in part, I believe, from their religious beliefs as they exist, or if they exist, of liberals versus the religious beliefs of conservatives. At least contemporary conservatives here in Canada and in the United States. Now, the following comparison of the professed religions of party leaders should illustrate what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Just consider this. Now, the liberal leader since uh, Louis Saint Laurent Louis Saint Laurent was a Roman Catholic. Lester B. Pearson, United Church, which, by the way, is not evangelical and doesn't believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible. Pierre Trudeau. Roman Catholic, John Turner, Roman Catholic, Jean Chrétien, Roman Catholic, Stefan Dion, Roman Catholic, Paul Martin, Roman Catholic, Michael Ignatiev. we don't know. I mm. couldn't find out what Michael yeah, Ignatiev's religion was. That's, uh, that I found interesting. But if he was anything like the trend of liberal leaders, he may be a Roman Catholic, I don't know. Now here are the professed religious beliefs of some recent conservative leaders. Joe Clark, Roman Catholic, Brian Mulroney, Roman Catholic, Now, that brings us up to 1988. Preston Manning, Christian and Missionary Alliance, an evangelical religion. Stockwell Day, Pentecostal, an evangelical religion. Stephen Harper, the exact same church or uh, faith as uh, Preston Manning, Christian and Missionary Alliance, an evangelical religion. So all 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 three of the past conservative leaders since 1988 profess religions which are evangelical. Now, it should come as little surprise that the majority of liberal leaders were and are Catholics. The Catholic believes that in order for an action to be moral, the person must have made the action freely without compulsion.
2: That's how I was raised. The Catholic. That's how
3: I was yeah. raised in the Catholic faith as well. He must have a choice. Choice is central to morality. Now, this tenet of Catholicism is particularly responsible, I believe, for the relaxation of personal behavior legislation, beginning with who I considered one of the worst leaders our country has ever had pierre elliot trudeau now for example the abolishment of the death penalty it occurred under trudeau but was attempted to be to, attempted to be brought back in by the conservatives under the mulroney there was a vote in the house of commons but Mulroney, being a catholic himself allowed a free vote and the attempt by the more evangelical conservatives to bring back the death penalty under mulroney failed From the rise of the uh, political evangelical movement in Canada beginning in 1987 with the um, creation of the Reform Party to the recent majority government of the evangelical Stephen Harper, Canadians can expect, at the very least, I believe, a continuation of restrictions on personal freedom, such as our repressive drug laws. We can expect some private members' bills in the next five years attempting to roll back the clock on legislation probably roll it back about 6,000 years, I'd say, (laughs) which had gotten the government out of the bedrooms of Canadians. Look forward to a renewed effort to censor adult content on television, as happened in the United States under the Bush, both Bush administrations. Look forward to a crackdown on prostitution and teenagers smoking pot. Now, thankfully, since many of the newly elected conservatives are not... Of the evangelical persuasion, the likelihood of any of these motions passing I consider to be slim, especially given that Harper, evangelical or not, um, he wishes I would say to uh, be reelected, and will not give his support to this conservative hidden agenda. The genie you know, of uh, just a second about yeah. the genie of personal freedom, in my opinion, is, is has been let out of the bottle slowly, starting with Trudeau and Liberal governments. Then, thanks mostly, in part to our uh, courts and to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, a Trudeau creation to put it back in by evangelical conservatives will mean that the party that does so will quickly be relegated back to the left side of the House. That's what I think about that. And that's my research on this is basically based on a letter that we received from uh, uh, a loyal listener, Marco, who got me thinking in this direction. So anyway, Bobby, you were going to say, sorry.
2: No, I was just going to say you know, whatever, all these things about Harper and all the other political leaders, including Manning, they never brought these things to the great political forward, like it wasn't on their front burner at all in any way, as a politician might do in the States. Now, that's true, too. You know
3: what I mean? Yep, because in the States, I think that they rely a lot on their uh, evangelical voters. Well, here, they don't, except except perhaps in uh, Alberta, where it's it's the Bible Belt of Canada. It's interesting,
2: with respect to Reagan, you mentioned that it was the, you know, what what pat robertson and uh, what's his name falwell who who had a lot to do with his getting elected but it was also the influence of milton friedman from the very clip of free to choose that that, that, right? that, that was that free to choose series was also attributed as one of the major factors to ronald reagan's election Is that right? so his his support didn't come from one source alone now, no i course, wasn't suggesting no, no, that but but that's why i'm just making making a point of that right now. But uh, there's our quick look at um, left, right, and the basic uh, political spectrum on our 200th show. Don't know what we're going to be doing next week, but we hope that you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, you know what to do. Be right, act right, do right, stay right, and be right back here. We'll see you next week. Take care. Into color
5: Color to black and white Under the bad
4: clothes, Everything
0: will be alright We're going to have to send a man in to infiltrate that barbershop Now, if we can do it successfully, we'll be able to learn how chaos finances their evil schemes
4: Maybe
5: they're playing the stock market, chief No, Max, I don't think so It's much more likely to get their money by robbery, extortion, and blackmail You're probably right A lot of people don't trust the market these days <laughs>